Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we discuss the sentencing of Kremlin critic Vladimir Karamuza, analyse criticism of Russian elites from Wagner PMC's leader Yevgeny Prigozhin, and we welcome to our London studio Ukrainian writer and war crimes researcher, Victoria Amelina. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Monday the 17th of April, one year and 52 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today I'm joined by our foreign correspondent James Kilner and Ukrainian writer and war crimes researcher Victoria Amelina. I started by asking James for the latest updates from Russia and Ukraine. Hi, David. So clearly the the really important headline news from Russia today is the sensing of Vladimir Kalamuza who's a uh, very prominent opposition journalist and uh, politician, to 25 years in prison for discrediting the Russian army and treason, etc. It's an absolutely huge sentence, really just for speaking his conscience, for talking out against the Kremlin. This is absolutely where we are. We, we knew this was coming, but it's still incredibly... I've got to try and find the words. It's incredibly sad and poignant and and and... It makes you filled with anger to, to to see such a principled man sitting in the dock with his hands in hand, handcuffed, wearing his tweed jacket, looking. You know, this is the last time. We don't know when we're going to be be seeing him again, and it's it's really crushing. This is one of the most principled uh, opponents of Vladimir Putin's regime we have, and now he's been in prison for twenty five years. Obviously, follows news last week that Alexander Navalny his more prominent Russian opposition colleague, has accused the Kremlin of trying to poison him. He's already in prison. And also, uh, of course, Evan Gershevich, the um, Wall Street Journal journalist, was arrested uh, for, for alleged spying at the end of March, and he's in prison. So what we have here is, 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 is again, the crushing of any dissent, any free media in Russia is incredibly, incredibly sad to see. So that's really the headline news. Some other very important things. The Chinese defence minister flew into Moscow yesterday ahead of talks where he, he met Putin last night and there was a video of him meeting Putin. 
then say anything of any real interest on, on, on the video. And there was no press releases around this meeting yesterday. But I think the fact he's there is incredibly important. And we know it comes only a few weeks after Xi Jinping, the um, Chinese leader, was in Moscow to talk to Vladimir Putin over about two or three days, an incredibly important moment in this war. Vladimir Putin was very isolated before, before Xi came to back him up. Again, in, in that meeting between Xi and Putin, there was no major policy shifts announced, but the, the fact who's there was, was, was incredibly important. And as I said at the time, and I've said ever since, will influence other smaller countries and who they back in, in, in this conflict. And now we have the, the Chinese defence minister in town. So I'd expect something important to emerge, even if we're not told about it at the time. I think we are seeing a strengthening of this Beijing-Moscow axis. And I think it's causing incredible, incredible concern in Washington and London, etc., and rightly so. so. So so that's really what we have going on this morning. Um, over the weekend, we obviously had this decision by Poland and Hungary to ban imports of uh, grain from Ukraine. And I, I just read before I came on air that Slovakia has joined in. They were, they were already sort of, they'd already banned, semi-banned some types of it, etc. So that's not a surprise. Bulgaria is also probably going to join in, I'd imagine. So, so what's happened here? For anyone who hasn't got around to reading their Telegraph newspaper yet this morning, and, and you know it's already one o'clock London time, so um, shame, you know, it's unfortunate if you haven't gone around to reading it yet. But anyway, it's all there. And the what's happened is when the war started over a year ago, the EU lifted tariffs on Ukrainian grain imports because at the time the Russian Navy was blocking Ukrainian seaports onto the Black Sea. And Africa needed grain badly to to, to stave off potential famine, etc. So it, it it lifted these 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 tariffs, which were in place to protect grain farmers in places like Poland, Hungary, Slovakia, Bulgaria, etc. And the and millions of tons of Ukrainian grain then came into the EU. I mean, we're talking two thousand percent increase or something. And a lot of this grain was meant to get sent on to Africa, etc. But it didn't. It got it stayed in Poland and Hungary, etc. Uh, either by accident through bottlenecks or logistical bottlenecks, or it got uh, or sort of unscrupulous traders decided they can make super profits by selling it locally. And this has happened, and this has completely undermined local farmers' economies, etc. So they have been protesting very strongly since February. The Polish government is facing an election this year and they had to do something about it. So they and the Hungarians, who are the sort of the grumpy, grumpy child of uh, the EU, decided the weekend that they'd had enough and they were going to ban these uh, imports of grain. This has upset the EU, which has very firmly rebuked them yesterday, very firmly, and said, you know, trade policies within the EU bloc are the exclusive, the, the European Commission has exclusivity on, on what to do about it. So, you know, we've, re- we, we, we've been writing about this sort of fragmentation of, of the West and, and how countries and people are getting frustrated by various economic policies, inflation, grain deals, rising fuel prices, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and this is really coming to the fore now where you have EU member states making unilateral decisions about trade issues, which is infuriating the EU. And frankly, pleasing the Kremlin. We have to remember that Kremlin really 
thrives on 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 opposition weakness and fragmentation. The 2016 Brexit referendum in in, in Britain was an absolute triumph for, for the Kremlin, as was the election of Trump. And the near, I mean, we, we just have ordered to hear the near breakup of the of the United Kingdom with, with Scottish independence from 2014 and onwards. So the Kremlin is looking at these protests in Poland and Hungary, particularly, but also Bulgaria, Romania, etc., and and rubbing its uh, you know hands with glee. There was a a very pointed telegram message by the uh, head of the Russian Foreign Ministry over the weekend, who said that Poland, who is really Sort of trying to project quite a lot of military and diplomatic power out of this conflict in in neighbouring Ukraine. How Poland has quote is is a Judas who's choked choked itself on a, on a piece of grain. I mean, really pointed stuff. So that is definitely a major story to look out for, David. Thank you very much, James. Just one more question to to you. Over the weekend, you wrote up the story, more essentially infighting in the Russian elite. Prigozhin, the head of the Wagner Group, made some comments on the counteroffensive, attacking his countrymen in, in Moscow. What did he say and why is that, is that important? Yeah, really quite interesting story, David. Um, we, we all know that Prigozhin, he's, he's really done incredibly well out of this war. His, his sort of status and visibility in, within Russia and, and, and obviously the outside world uh, to all us observers, has has been incredible. Has been magnified hugely by this war and and, and, the, and his Wagner Group, etc. So he wrote this rather long-winded and rambling email um, essay, which he put on the internet. Which I mean, the thrust of it, there was various different angles he could take, in, and I've seen some reports saying that he he called for an end to the war. That's that, that's slightly wrong. He didn't. He just said that the elite was so lazy and decadent that they were undermining the uh, war effort in the Kremlin and that the real heroes of Russia today need to push on and to to, to fight with everything they've, they've got against the Western uh, machine, etc. And and he was really trying to use... He, he, he's been doing this an awful lot. He, he basically likes to create an image where he and his hardworking Wagner mercenaries are, are out on the front line trying to protect the Russian state and the Russian way of life, while the fat and lazy elite in Moscow and St. Petersburg and, and now overseas in, in Paris and London and, and Tel Aviv, etc., are sort of looking after their, their capital and, and working out how to pay their, their, their children's school fees, etc., etc. And, and, and he is worried, he's increasingly worried about his position in the Russian system. He, he's obviously worried about the stability of the Russian system and what happens next if if Putin's position, and I'm not saying it's come to this at all at the moment, but if Putin's position does weaken, how everyone jostles for position. And he's been very active on on, on Telegram and on, online in the last, well, six months, but particularly in the last three months, to try and position himself as, and his Wagner group, as a viable professional elite alternative to the Russian military. Of course, we know that it's primarily made up of, of convicts recruited straight from Russian penal system. These are rapists and uh, murderers and drug dealers, etc. And they're mainly used for cannon fodder. But he's very, very keen to present a different image. And to that end, yesterday, he also released a uh, prisoner swap video. Now, this is the first one I've seen from Wagner 
about 100 Ukrainian prisoners. They looked very thin and dirty. They were still wearing the same combat fatigues that they were captured in. I mean, and, and some of them were clearly injured. So I'm, I'm not sure how well treated they were. Um, but they were being released by Wagner, not by the Russian military, by Wagner, who were in sort of semi-militarized uniforms. They're wearing the balaclavas and their insignia on, etc. And one of them had been given a pet talk by Prigozhin before uh, the, the handover was, was given. But but again, this is the important thing here and the point for our listeners and, and readers to, to take away is that this is another effort by Prigozhin to try and mainstream and 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 to present as as sort of like the the good guys, you know, his 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 Wagner Wagner group. It is it's, it's remarkable. The um, this is a group which we know has been accused of various human rights abuses in the Middle East, in Africa, and also in Ukraine. Well, thank you very much, James, for that. Victoria, Emelina, thank you so much for joining. Would you just remind us a bit about yourself and why you've come to London? Hi, everyone, and uh, thanks for having having me again. Um, Well, I used to be a writer, a novelist before the full-scale Russian invasion. Uh, Now I'm also doing a war crimes research. Uh, So I wear two hats, both of a writer and a war crimes researcher. Uh, But now I'm here in London, uh, visiting London Book Fair, so obviously I'm here as a writer. Well, it's really, really lovely to have you in the studio, uh, Victoria. Yesterday, I saw you celebrated um, Easter in London. Um, Can you tell us about that? What was it like? What stories did you hear? Um, What was the atmosphere in the church? Uh, Both my colleague, uh, uh, Tatiana Terin, an executive director of uh, Pan-Ukraine, and I went to the Ukrainian church, which is uh, near uh, Acton Town uh, tube station. Uh, and it was important to, uh, for us to be with uh, the Ukrainian community on that day. Uh, I have to say that uh, I'm not uh, religious, but uh, in Ukraine, uh, Christianity became, and Ukrainian church uh, always was uh, um, something related to Ukrainian resistance. And while over the Soviet years, uh, Russian Orthodox Church uh, came to be one with the state, and still uh, Russian Orthodox Church is basically part of uh, the state, uh, and we, we, I think, all are aware that many of the priests uh, there are, in fact, FSB uh, agents. But uh, in Ukraine, on the contrary, uh, church was always uh, on the side of the resistance. Um, and uh, for us, it is very important to come together on Easter. I have uh, quite a complex family story. Uh, for example, my grandmother used to, to work as a teacher in the Soviet times. And for her, uh, on the uh, days of Easter or uh, Christmas, uh, It was hard because uh, she had to go to the church and stand there to record which of her students uh, come to the Ukrainian church, come to service, and her duty was to report those uh, students uh, to to the management uh, of school. Uh, And um, she did go. Uh, although she she was a Christian herself, uh, but uh, uh, she tried to not report her students. Of course, she pretended that she doesn't see them. And I describe uh, uh, this episode as well in in my last novel, Dom's Dream Kingdom. 
so for us, as you can as you can see, uh, going to Ukrainian church uh, has been an act of resistance before. Right now, it is uh, fortunately not so, but uh, it is still important for us to come together on uh, these days. What was the atmosphere like in Acton? Um, who did you talk to? Who was there? Was it good to be amongst the, could we call them di- the diaspora? Uh, you know, the atmosphere was uh, unique for me because, yes, it was obvious that some people uh, live uh, here in London for a long time and some of them, of course, are uh, refugees now. Uh, I've seen a couple, well, I, I didn't really talk to people, but I've seen a couple of uh, mixed marriages. For example, I've seen uh, uh Asian Ukrainian or African Ukrainian so uh, uh, people dressed uh, in uh, national uh, embroidered shorts with shivankas although uh, apparently ethnically they are not Ukrainian and I love uh, seeing that because this is this is actually how I see the future of Ukraine after the victory Uh, I would love uh, uh, everyone to to come to Kyiv and uh, Kharkiv and help uh, rebuild uh, and I would like uh, Kyiv community or Kharkiv community be as diverse as London is or New York is. Um, so uh, yesterday at Acton Town, I could see uh, a little bit of a vision of of, of that with, with those uh, mixed uh, families dressed in in Ukrainian national costumes. You mentioned that you're working on a new book. This is the War and Justice Diary, looking at women, looking at war. Can you tell us about this? What are you writing about? Basically, I uh, started keeping a war diary like uh, many of my fellow writers uh, at the beginning of the invasion. And first in March, I worked at the humanitarian aid uh, warehouse uh, and accepted uh, the uh, refugees uh, from the east part of the country. Uh, But uh, then, as you know, I uh, trained and uh, became a part of a war crimes research team. uh, And so I started uh, making notes on that. Um, And the most important thing is that uh, on my way of uh, becoming a war crimes researcher, I met uh, uh, women uh, like myself uh, who switched from doing doing their ordinary jobs uh, to doing war crimes research. Um, And I realized that uh, there is a unique phenomenon, this uh, Ukrainian civil society quest for justice, uh, that uh, I want to tell this story because, you know, it was not obvious for me and it's still not obvious if we will succeed uh, in uh, making sure that all the perpetrators are uh, tried in the Hague uh, or special tribunal for the crime of aggression, but uh, at least uh, I can tell the story of this pursuit of justice uh, and uh, it will be justice in telling this story in itself. So um, I messaged, I remember messaging Alexandra Matvichuk, who is now well known because she's now a Nobel Peace Prize laureate. Back then, she wasn't that famous, but uh, she was already very, very important uh, for uh, Ukrainian uh, quest for justice. So I messaged her and I told her exactly that, uh, that uh, um, I want to tell the story of of her quest and her team's quest. Uh, so even if uh, we cannot... Uh, win maybe because it was not obvious back then I wanted to tell this story and so uh, my diary started. Just talking a little bit more about this book and your diary um, 
what moments have you recorded so far that you talk about, that you write about, that you'd want our listeners to know and understand? Uh, for example, I tell a story of Yevgenia Zakrevska, and her story uh, is the story of a lawyer uh, becoming a soldier. Uh, the book starts with, uh, almost starts with her decision uh, not to go to the court, but go to the uh, territorial defense office and join in the army. Or rather, it's not uh, her decision to do so, but uh, she's waiting for the courts to open on February 24th, 2022 in Kiev. And she's really eager to go uh to the courtroom and do her job as a lawyer. Her case is very important because it is a case of uh, the killing of the peaceful protesters uh, on Maidan in 2014. Uh, and she believes that even uh, despite the war, the courts should work and the is institutions are what uh, we should defend. But uh, when it becomes obvious that the courts will be closed, uh, she just takes her uh, backpack and uh, goes to uh, the territorial defense and joins the army. She's still, she's still uh, fighting. She's uh, in the Kharkiv region now. But uh, what what what's interesting, and this is also in the book, she did participate uh, uh, in that hearing uh, that she wanted uh, to attend on the February 24th, uh, because uh, it was postponed, uh, but she was able to participate uh, via Zoom. So she did uh, make her uh, argument uh, as a lawyer uh, representing the families of the fallen heroes of the revolution. And uh, right now we are all waiting for the court's decision. So this is, you know, another line of, of uh, seeking justice. Uh, and uh, right now she's, she's fighting for justice, uh, not in the courtroom, but literally. Another story is, of course, the story of uh, Alexandra Matvichuk, uh, who has uh, organized an initiative called Tribunal for Putin. And they have documented tens of thousands uh, of uh, war crimes. Um, and my perhaps uh, favorite story is the story of a woman uh, whose name I cannot uh, uh, pronounce. She uh, will be in the book under her, her call sign. Her call sign is Casanova. Uh, and uh, she's a war crimes researcher since uh, 2015. She has been going to the occupied Crimea, to the occupied Donetsk to document war crimes. And just before the beginning of the full-scale invasion, she decided to quit her uh, hard job of a war crimes researcher and start a new life, have have a home and a garden, uh, which uh, I, I think everyone in, uh, in the UK can understand, the dream of having a garden. Um, but uh, on February 24th, uh, she had to make a call uh, to her uh, previous employer, War Crimes Research Organization, Truth Hounds, and say that she'd like to join again. In the past, Victoria, we've talked about Ukrainian literature and how it's changed um, during the full-scale invasion. Um, can we return to this? Uh, in April 2023, what are Ukrainians reading? What are the new books, publications? Can you just give us a sense of, if we walked into a bookshop in Kiev today, what would it look like? Well, first of all, uh, books which were scheduled for uh, coming out before the full-scale invasion start coming out now. They were postponed, but uh, uh, the publishing in uh, industry uh, is uh, resuming its its work. 
but I'd like to tell you about the book which you wouldn't find in the bookshops right now because it was sold out in less than a month. Uh, and uh, it is uh, a book of a scholar. It's a Uh, I would call it a popular history uh, book, and it's about the generation of uh, the 60 years. Uh, you could compare them to beatniks, perhaps, uh, or something like that, but uh, you have to understand that uh, the Ukrainian beatniks, the, the 60 years, had to operate in the Soviet Union. So, of course, under totalitarian regime, their fates were very tragic, and uh, they had to do all kinds of things, including, uh, and I like to think about it, uh, of course, they didn't do war crimes research like, like I do, but they did have to research crimes committed by the regime in the past. Um, so this is uh, a book by Radomir Mokrik, which is called uh, an, uh, like a Rebellion Against the Empire, uh, meaning the Soviet Union. And this is a book about this generation uh, that includes, you know, new research. Uh, he did a lot of work in the archives. Uh, and included a lot of letters, etc., of uh, the writers and artists of that generation. Uh, unfortunately, I wasn't able to get the book <laughs> because I was too late. Uh, I was busy doing the war crimes research, and I'm uh, waiting for uh, uh, the, the books to be additionally printed because right now, because of the full-scale invasion, uh, Ukrainians are so interested uh, in their history Um, that the publisher didn't expect the book to be that successful and they printed not enough copies. Really fascinating, Victoria. Could you um, tell us a little bit about your trip to London so far? Um, what's it been like coming here? How, how have the interactions been with people? What have you seen that you know, maybe surprised you or um, you, you know, you'll tell people back home? Uh, well, uh, I live on the exhibition road Uh, and uh, well, there's the street anyway. Uh, I might be mixing up the names of the London streets, so forgive me. Uh, so I um, I noticed the scars from the Second World War uh, on the Victoria and Albert Museum, and this perhaps um, impressed me uh, more than anything because this is what. Uh, Uh, I'm used to seeing in Ukraine right now, and uh, it coincided with uh, uh, seeing the similar scars on Kherson Art Museum, which was recently shelled. Uh, Kherson Art Museum is, of course, now almost uh, empty after being looted uh, by the retreating Russian troops. Uh, but uh, even this empty museum is uh, still being shelled. Um, I have to say that I didn't go to Victoria and Albert's museum to, to, to see art because it's difficult for me to, to see art right now. Uh, it gets to, to deep to my heart, which is already so I, I don't want to feel to start feeling things. I'd rather feel numb because of what I have to see every day in Ukraine. So I didn't go inside, but I did stand in front of the museum and look uh, at those shell holes uh, in its walls and thinking of uh, how you perhaps uh, understand us because uh, uh, for you, war is not something that you know only from, from books, but uh, you also preserve memory of the Second World War, even uh, looking at these uh, uh, traces of the, the shells uh, on the museum walls. Final question from me is really 
What's next for you? Where are you going on to? And what are you doing when you get back to Ukraine? Uh, from London, I will go to Dublin, where uh, there will be a huge concert of uh, solidarity between Ireland uh, and Ukraine. Uh, and right after Dublin, I'm heading to Kiev uh, to join the team going to Kramatorsk and uh, Svetohirsk. Uh, and uh, we will be again uh, uh, documenting war crimes. This is not a war crimes uh, uh, mission, but a trip of Ukrainian writers uh, and culture figures organized by uh, Ukrainian pen club. Uh, we're going to see the destruction with our own eyes, but we also uh, do document uh, war crimes with uh, eyewitness applications. So we anyway contribute to, to the accountability effort, uh, although this is just the writer's trip to Kramatorsk and Svatohirsk. And of course, we will be bringing humanitarian aid. This is what we what, what we have to do at all times. Victoria, is there anything... Um we haven't spoken about that you'd want to mention? I always wanted to mention how thankful we are for um, all your help from to our allies because uh, I really do know that uh, I'm here, I'm, I'm able to be here in li- London and I'm alive uh, thanks to the Ukrainian armed forces and uh, uh, thanks to our allies who supply us weapons. Uh, please, uh, please keep uh, supporting us. Uh, please stand with Ukraine. Well, thank you so much, Victoria, for coming in. It's really nice to meet you. Um, James, uh, any questions for Victoria from your end? Um, I, thought, I thought that was a fascinating um, uh, little little vignette, Victoria. Thank you very much. Um, I, th- I think my wife was wandering past the Ukrainian uh, church in, in Acton yesterday and, and, saw, and, and saw how busy it was. Um, I mean, what is the morale in the congregation? And is, is, are, are they actively... Um, raising money is the church actually raising money and, and sending it back to um, Ukraine or, or buying buying stuff or weapons with, with cash? What, what, what are they doing? Uh, my understanding is that uh, yes, that uh, there was a fundraising uh, uh, at Acton Town, and uh, it goes both to Ukrainian refugees, uh, but also you could uh, donate uh, money to the Ukrainian army, which is uh, really important for saving lives. And so I think this is very, very Christian to donate money to the Ukrainian army uh, right now. So they were doing that too. And um, we, we, in, in, in Ukraine, we know there's been a bit of a witch hunt for so-called um, uh, Moscow sympathizers among among the uh, in, in, in the in the Orthodox churches. There, uh, you, you said earlier that the you felt that the Orthodox Church in Ukraine had been a more of a place of refuge for uh, Ukrainian nationalists and the Ukrainian uh, mission. Has that changed the sentiment in Ukraine um, and even in your church uh, over the weekend? Has, has that changed uh, since the war began and, and uh, Ukrainian security services have, have been uh, arresting a few priests, etc.? Uh, well, we we all know that uh, there is a Moscow Patriarchy still operating in uh, Ukraine and uh, Kyiv Patriarchy. Uh, so there are like two, at least two Orthodox churches uh, in Ukraine. And obviously right now, uh, church communities uh, are 
largely making decisions to um, switch to uh, give uh, uh, patri patriarchy instead of uh, uh, being administratively connected uh, to Moscow. But uh, not everyone is doing that, so we'll 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 see some. Uh, hesitation and some movement uh, in uh, in this direction, but uh, um, I don't see. Uh, well, I ho I'm hopeful. I think I'm I'm hopeful, and uh, I think that in a couple of years we'll just uh, uh, see that uh, we have Ukrainian Orthodox Church with the center in uh, Kiev, and uh, uh, there will be no no discussion about that. But uh, in uh, Kiev Pechersk Lavra this year, there were two services. Uh, one of them was, uh, and that was the first time uh, in more than 300 years, one service was uh, in Ukrainian. Uh, but still, the other service was uh, um, by this uh, Orthodox Church uh, that is connected to Moscow. And I think this is a good thing that um, th this branch was also allowed to have their service. This is important because uh, we don't want, you know, to to force uh, anyone t to to move to other church. We want things to happen in more natural uh, and peaceful way. Thank you very much, uh, James, for those questions. Victoria, just one more question from me. I think everybody covering this 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 war over Easter will have seen all those wonderful pictures of Ukrainian Easter eggs. Can you tell us a little bit about them? Oh well, I'm not. I'm not an expert, although, <laughs> uh, although I know just that every symbol in in those ornaments that go on on the egg uh, means something, and that uh, the tradition goes, in fact, uh, not to Christian times, but to to pagan times, in fact. And there are symbols of uh, uh, um, endless life, and etc., etc. And it's very interesting. It it's an entire topic in itself, uh, and. Uh, uh, I think this uh, uh, this deserves, you know, in Ukraine we do have uh, master classes, workshops for children and adults uh, for uh, uh, ornamenting Easter eggs. Uh, but I'm not an expert. You'd have to invite someone <laughs> who is an expert next time, and and maybe and maybe do a workshop uh, in this. Uh, uh, there would could be a great team building for the Telegraph team. <laughs> I did actually win um, a Easter egg painting competition when I was eight years old, so I, I backed myself there. Um, James Kilner, can I come to you? Any final updates from you before we go to final thoughts? There's more, more from the Kremlin on on this uh, meeting with the uh, with the Chinese Defence Minister. Um, the Chinese Defence Minister apparently this is his first trip. This was his first trip overseas since he took the job, which he said is meaningful. And he also said that China was uh, willing to increase military cooperation with Russia. Again, we don't know exactly what that means, but I think that is it is very significant. And also it came at the same time over the weekend. There was a, an unexpected um, uh, mobilization of Russia's Pacific fleet out in uh, the Vladivostok Far East region. Um, uh, and this was the Kremlin said this just to check the readiness of the fleet, et cetera, et cetera. And then there's pictures today of Sergei Shoigu, the um, Russian defense minister, giving his report to Vladimir Putin on um, on, on on this inspection of the Pacific fleet. Now, uh, analysts, Western analysts have said that uh, the timing of this is very important, that it was done to try and impress the Chinese defense minister as he was in Moscow. 
to, uh, for, for, for the Kremlin really to peak up to show off its, uh, its fleet in the Pacific region um, with the hint that with tension rising over Taiwan, etc., uh, China wants Russia as its ally. So we've got all this going on, and at the same time, we've got uh, uh, Vladimir uh, Kanamuza being, being sent to 25 years in prison for speaking his mind. Uh, the symbolism the, the, is, is, is there for everyone to see. Thank you very much, James. Victoria, as our guest, would you like the very final thoughts? Uh, thank you so much uh, uh, for having me, and please uh, uh, do check the spotlight program of London Book Fair this year because uh, Ukraine is in the spotlight, uh, and there will be a couple of uh, events uh, starting tomorrow uh, that will uh, cover Ukrainian literature and uh, writers in times of war, and we will even have uh, uh, writers uh, who are soldiers right now uh, online because of obviously they cannot leave Ukraine. Uh, but we'll have them on the program, so please uh, do join us. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine Live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload, So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, and today on Twitter, Claire Hubble. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.